Hi, Future Kieran here. This episode was recorded in September 2021, and has been stuck in editing hell for several months. As a result, our discussion at the beginning about Russell T. Davies' return to the fold is now pretty out of date, although I don't think any of it is contradicted by more recent events, including the casting of Shuti Gatwa. I have left it in for historical interest, fittingly enough, but if you want to get to the meat of the episode, just use the first time code in the description to jump past all of the Davis stuff. It's about 15 minutes long. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for our special new episode on historicals. But before we get to that, we're going to tackle the big news of the day, which we don't normally go very timely on these episodes just because like, they are unpredictable in terms of how long they're going to take to edit. But this is going to be big news for quite a while, so it's worth tackling, I think, and it has impinges massively on the future of the series. So this is the news that Russell T. Davies will be returning to the fold for the 60th anniversary and beyond. So, I mean, just, I guess just initial reactions, like, what do, what do we think? What did we think when we first read about this? I was extremely confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because, like, I'm, I'm still very curious to know exactly what it was that convinced Russell the Davies to come back mm. after having said that he wouldn't mm. consistently for some time. And I think also it was just a very, like, underwhelming <laughs> announcement for me because much as I have enjoyed his Doctor Who... I would have been much more excited to see somebody else, someone new, take the reins. It would be different if he was just coming back for the 60th anniversary. That might have been quite mm. a nice touch, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think that is kind of the, the central salient point for me, that like, for all that I know, for all that, you know, the Russell T. Davies of 2023 or whatever is not the Russell T. Davies of, like, 2005 or even 2010. He's obviously going to do something different. I still feel like, on some level, I fundamentally know what his Doctor Who looks like, and I would much rather hear from a newer voice. I would also, to be honest, much rather that Russell T. Davies kept on making things like It's a Sin, rather than coming back to Doctor Who. He's a writer that I would like to be surprised by. I mean, in terms of what brought him back, actually... This is wild and rampant speculation on my part. So feel free to disregard it. <laughs> but I wonder if it's a John Nathan Turner situation. Where John Nathan Turner spent most of the 80s, certainly the latter half of the 80s, wanting to leave Doctor Who. But knowing that if he did, the show was going to die. Because uh, no one else wanted to step in to produce it. So I kind of wonder if Davies caught wind of the... The idea that it, the show might be in trouble after Chibnall left and, as a public service, decided to step in. Completely unconfirmed. Wild speculation on my part, but I do wonder. 
I mean, I think there's probably a point to that, given the fact that normally they would say in the same press release, this person's stepping down and this person's taking over. And with this one, it was this person stepping down and we'll find out who the next person is. And it was it was framed as like, um, you know, uh, I think they described it as the new generation of Doctor Who. And I think, mm, yeah, I think that's something I find frustrating. I mean, like like both of you, I feel very disappointed. Um, I mean, because I wanted to see someone do something different with it, and that wording in the press release mm. implied that we would get someone doing something different with it. And it seems like the new generation is very much the old generation, you know. And like even like the you know the Bad Wolf Productions thing, they're gonna like produce it. Like it's Julie Gardner, it's Jane Tranter, it's all the people who brought it back in the first place mm-hmm. so it seems like the whole team is just back again and i i was never a massive fan of the davies era anyway um although I've, it's kind of i don't know i i look a bit more favorably on it than i used to but like it just seems like the kind of the peak of the kind of like nostalgia that we've seen for the davies era in 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 you know in the chimney era kind of chibnall bringing back you yeah. know the jadoon bringing back jack harkness all of that stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I I think it's. I do think it's interesting in like a wider cultural mm. context of like, sort of nostalgia for the nineties and the two thousands, as compared to the, uh, you know, the current kind of era of, uh, you know, of kind of like populism and what's described as post truth or whatever. Like I, I think there is. Mm. I don't know. I think it plays in going back to Davies kind of plays into that again and I don't mean that as like a conspiracy or a conscious choice I just think it reflects yeah. a kind of a wider you know kind of cultural moment and feeling I suppose yeah I mean like there's a couple of things to pick up on there I think um one of my first thoughts honestly when I saw that Davies was coming back was oh well this kind of is the logical end point of <laughs> what we've seen in particularly series 12 actually and the uh, revolution of the Daleks as well just the the aesthetics and the kind of uh, obviously the, even the characters of the the Davies era being kind of partially brought back, partially kind of homaged mm. in a and yeah, what seems to be quite a kind of empty nostalgic gesture, I suppose. And so I've been thinking of it. So yeah, there's something weirdly fitting about this. Then the other thing to I, that I think deserves to be explored, I, I mentioned this before we started recording actually, is you mentioned Bad Wolf, the production company. And this is something that has been a bit under-discussed, but um, I think Alex Moreland is the only person I've seen write about this. This would be the first time that Doctor Who has been sort of fully handed off to an external production company, mm-hmm. albeit one with links to the show, obviously. Yeah. Bly (laughs) (laughs) But like There is something kind of Faintly disturbing about that as well I think just the The notion I'm trying to stop saying the notion of Because I was listening to a past episode earlier Um, But the idea There we go There's a synonym Of Doctor Who being made As a public good essentially you know, publicly funded, all that kind of thing. In a way, I think that's a kind of, um, that's an interesting one in terms of cultural context as well, 
in terms of like increasing privatization. Yeah. Although I think you could spend a long time talking about that. But like, while it's it's not that I think Bad Wolf being involved is inherently a bad thing, I worry about it as a precedent. Mm. Uh, that's what I would say about that, essentially. It's also kind of not, this isn't so much about the Bad Wolf thing, but about the the speculation that was sort of going around about who might be the next showrunner. I think this is kind of interestingly pertinent to what we are going to be talking about more this episode in, in that one of the people that was sort of thrown about based on, I don't know if it was really based on anything was Sally Wainwright, who I am most familiar with through To Walk Invisible, which was a, TV film about the Bronte siblings and Gentleman Jack, which is a TV series about the 19th century landowner and famous lesbian historical figure Anne Lister. So she's very sort of immersed in writing smart and interesting historical historical settings in her work and I got to thinking about how we've never really had to my knowledge anyway a showrunner for whom historical drama has been their kind their sort of niche in that way mm. I mean I know she's done loads of other stuff mm. but like I got very excited basically mm. thinking it might there was a chance that it might be her and mm. so then of course when it inevitably wasn't because it was like just one of those rumours, I was disappointed. I mean, I was really excited about that as well. Um, and yeah. I, th- like, I think one thing that's kind of interesting about that is I know that her and Russell T. Davies are very good friends because they started off yeah. together on uh, Coronation Street, I think. Um, oh. Yeah, so... so uh, like, And there was some rumour for a while going around that there might be two showrunners. So when mm. Russell T. Davies was announced, I was like, is she going to be involved in some way? I don't know. I doubt it, but um, but yeah, no, like I would have much prefer- preferred that. I think to what we've got. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the I I think that is that is an interesting point. The idea of someone coming in with like quite a different background in terms of what they're writing, because like you know, I think each of the the three showrunners have kind of brought their own background to bear in terms of like. Davies being very rooted in soap opera of one kind or another, uh, Moffat being very rooted in sitcom, Chibnall more kind of procedural drama, I suppose. Mm. Sexy cyber women. Well, yeah, I'm thinking like I'm, I'm thinking primarily of um, Broadchurch, but like um, I guess Torchwood as well. Actually, he wrote for Life on Mars ways. as well a couple of episodes. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But yeah, I mean. We'll we'll see. I I I'm interested to see what he does with the sixtieth in particular. But like, I don't know. The thing is, like Russell T Davies at the end of the day is a good writer and a good showrunner. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not worried in that regard. And I'm I'm very interested actually to see what writers he brings in. Mm-hmm. What kind of blend of old and new he might go for. If we assume that he has, and presumably if anyone does, it would be him. He has more or less carte blanche on that. I, I think this is a slightly silly thing to speculate about. There have been a lot of people speculating about whether or not Moffat might come back to do the odd episode, which I would guess not, to be honest, just because I, I suspect he feels quite fairly that he's done his bit. Mm. But yeah, who knows? 
I mean, I would have said that about Davies a couple of weeks ago, so... I mean, that's the thing that worries me about Davies, though, is... Well, first of all, it looks like very much like the BBC are bereft of ideas. Hmm. Um, you know, in that we're not going... To, you know, we're not going to try anything else or do... Try another showrunner. But also, I, I, I worry about the fact that... I know he's had this kind of, like... You know, he's he's been doing really well recently with kind of It's a Sin and A Very English Scandal and all of that kind of thing. But... And years and years as well. Um, but I do worry that he was very insistent that he was exhausted and that he didn't have any ideas for it and he didn't want to do it and now he's back. I don't know. I assume he wouldn't come back unless he did have something that he wanted to do with it. But hmm. I don't know. It's a bit worrying when someone says that and then, <laughs> and then they've come back to supposedly revitalise the programme because, you know, I think it is in a very poor state at the moment, really. Um, yeah, it's. I guess part of the problem is, uh, and it's. It look. It's unfair to make this comparison, but it if it, it does feel a bit like the show in like eighty six, eighty seven, around the time Andrew Carmel took over because as um, script editor, which is an unfair comparison because you know the show was in terminal decline at that point, and the only reason Carmel was able to hire on a bunch of new people was because no one cared about the show in terms of the BBC. Mm. But it does feel like that's the kind of thing it needs. And like one of the the things that Chibnall has done that I that I think has actually really worked is plump plumped for largely new voices in terms of the writing. And like I think we've gotten some really promising people out of that, you know, Vinay Patel top of the the pile in that regard, but like I worry because I do feel like an infusion of new blood is what the show primarily needs, and this seems like the exact opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like as well, with making historical analogies, I feel like the analogy that I keep making in my head is between now, uh, you know, like uh, Jodie Whittaker's first season onwards and uh, Peter Davison. And And it reminds me of that as well, in the sense that, like, the show's been kind of... It has a new younger doctor who's kind of a bit of a departure. Well, yeah, quite a lot of a departure, really. And um, there's even similarities in terms of the way that they play it, I think. But also, you know, it's kind of like the programme has been brought back in this very kind of flashy way. You know, like it looks visually very good and like there's a new title sequence and the composer's different. And it's all surface. Like, there's no there's no substance to it at all. Like, uh, and, and, and I feel... A, about that way about a lot of 80s Doctor Who and there's also the whole thing of like a kind of like a bump in the viewing figures at the beginning and then it's just gradually yeah, dropped which is com- well, I mean that's more complex in today's context obviously because mm. you know people are watching things online and they have loads of different channels to choose from but even so like it yeah it's a bit concerning yeah I know what you mean although at the, at the same time I, th- I mean I think I'm as we've established, I think a few times before, I'm much more fond of Peter Davison both as both the Fifth Doctor and his era than you are. So, like, but I I can see what you mean. But like, I mean the the past is not necessarily a, a reliable guide mm. in that regard, and you know the 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 historical context of eighties Doctor Who was totally different in terms of just the landscape of television and everything so we'll see (laughs) ultimately we will see 
So I think after a good 15 minute tangent, <laughs> uh, it might be time to move on to our actual ostensible topic for this uh, this episode, which is historicals, as we've kind of actually alluded to a little bit, pleasingly enough, already. So what we want to do is we want to talk about the historical in Doctor Who, what it can, certainly what it has done, what it can do, some ideas for what could be done with it in the future. Talking about some particularly good examples, probably some quite bad examples as well. Talking about different types of historical and all of that kind of thing. So if we start by talking about types of historical, there's three, I suppose, main types that I've... Well, not just me, but that tend to crop up in um, in fan discourse and, and writing a, a criticism about Doctor Who more generally. They're very broad. And particularly the first one is a very broad topic, but I think is kind of worth talking about within that broadness. The first one, essentially, is... There's no really good name for it, as there is with the other two, so I think I'm, I'm, I've plumped for just calling it the sci-fi historical. Mm. And that is, quite simply, a historical setting with sci-fi elements added. So this is kind of the... This is the standard fare for Doctor Who, really, and has been for the longest time. You know, the the first example is probably something like the Time Meddler, like in season two. And then it becomes the kind of the standard, probably sometime around um, early Tom Baker, really. It's the, you know, the, the classic land in a historical setting, investigate what's going on, find out there is some kind of alien, usually, influence. And then quite often revolves around removing that alien influence so that history may continue on its course. Like, there's just any number of examples spring to mind there, I think. I think part of its appeal is precisely... Well, there's two things. Firstly, it's inherently a fusion. And Doctor Who is very adept and very kind of based in this kind of fusion of genres and of settings and that kind of thing. So fusing a historical setting with uh, sci-fi content these two things that seem like they could be antithetical is kind of the very basis of the show. I mean, the the second ever episode of the show is a spaceship journeying into the Stone Age. So already it's there. But I think the other appeal is just that it's so broad. You can kind of do more or less anything with it. I mean, a bit later on in this episode, I'm going to be talking about three stories that I think are particular exemplars of the historical, and all three of them are sci-fi historicals. I have a little bit more to say about this, but I'll turn it over to you. Like, I realise this is a very broad topic, but like, what would you say about the sci-fi historical in general? What do you think some of the advantages, some of the pitfalls? I think it's probably what makes the most sense to try and do with a Doctor Who historical from a certain perspective, where you kind of most bring all the elements of the show together however i think sometimes there is a real risk of the science fiction slash alien element being very tacked on um i mean recently we were re-listening to one of our episodes on series nine Mm. season nine series nine about how the woman who lived is kind of an example of of that really mm. or or I think they try and over egg the sci-fi pudding where like you already have a science fiction element because it's time travel 
and particularly in something like The Woman Who Lived, me is in herself a science fiction element. Mm. And they don't, this doesn't really happen with the ones set in the future because in the stories set in the future, the monster or villain tends to just be something from that time period. Mm. Whereas in a historical, it tends to be something from that's very extraneous to the setting in a way that they are not always in the one set in the future or, or even often are. And I, I, I think that's kind of a weird thing to think about when you compare the the two different types of time travel stories that you get. Yeah, that's true. I mean, as as you alluded to, there is definitely an, an argument you made that every Doctor Who historical is a, a sci-fi historical because the Doctor's in it. Mm. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute, I think, when we start to talk about the other side of that coin. But yeah, I'll, I'll hold off a little bit on talking about what I think are some of the, the pitfalls, although you've kind of touched on them there. But yeah, Jacob, what's, what's your um, take? I find them very, uh, very variable. Like, I think they tend to work when the villains kind of... Uh, I think I've, I've said this before. Well, not just the villain, but like a, a sci- the sci-fi element is kind of incorporated into the historical setting. Hmm. You know, so it might be that it's something like the empty child where it uses a kind of, uh, you know, like a symbol of the time or like a, some, the iconography of the period, but not in a way that's just pastiche, you know, in a way that says mm. something about the historical period that it's set in. I mean, even something like the Time Warrior, which I'm, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of, but uh, like I, I do think there's at least some thematic coherence to having a mm. Sontaran in it because it's all about, mm. as we discussed in the podcast, it's all, you know, a lot of it's about kind of the state of war and, and all of that kind of thing. And obviously they're a warrior race and all of that. I think the problem is I find that it, that they've become very tired and cliched very often. You know, it's nearly all, like a lot of, like a lot of times it tends to be an alien or something comes into a historical setting and then it's all about the clash with that historical setting and it's about, you know, what happens when that technology comes into the, this historical time period. Um, and it's it's been done so many times. Like, I mean, they do that in the Time Warrior, but that's I think that's a relatively early example of that happening. Um, and I'm, I'm less bothered about it. But um, I find that a lot of times when they do things like that, there's not really a clear thematic reason for having the sci-fi mm. element in. It's just kind of, let's let's put these two things together. And I also think, um, you know, we were kind of talking about the idea of like, an element that comes in and kind of disrupts the timeline potentially and they have to kind of sort it out. And I think that is something that's very, that I find very problematic about the programme often uh, anyway. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of, you know, I'm going sort of towards the whole like arc of history kind of thing that uh, Elizabeth Sandler talks about. But like um, something like Rosa, I found it really problematic in because I think in Rosa specifically, it was like the, the they can't intervene in the situation because history has to run, you know, mm. uh, as it does so that Rosa sits, you know, on the bus as, as a protest and then it, that obviously sets in motion the rest of the civil rights movement and so on. Like, uh, the problem I have with it is particularly in an episode that's about civil rights, it's an extremely, like, liberal take, you know, it's kind of, Im- it's an implication of linear progression and it's it's the kind of, thing that was thrown at the civil rights movement very often by people who were 
kind of more moderate or moderate in quotation marks on the right, which was essentially these things will happen, but you have to wait for it, you know, and it, it that just doesn't sit well. It's like shouldn't have to wait for racial justice inequality. Like it's not, you know, um, yeah. And I mean, that's the that you know that is an issue that the program has as a whole. But I think it was a particular problem in that episode specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think Rosa's fascinating in this regard because, like, I think texturally, in terms of the kind of its representation of sort of late 50s southern USA, uh, Alabama specifically, it's like, it's really interesting. And I think it's it's a much braver episode than I expected it to be in some ways. Uh, in, like, almost beginning with Ryan being subjected to horrific racial abuse really not something I, I were at a place I expected to go but as you say I think thematically it's kind of incoherent and it's sort of like doesn't quite hold together um, and I think ends up undercutting itself quite badly um, I might have a little bit more to say about Rosa later on actually because I think it fits interestingly against another episode I want to talk about I think for me a frequent pitfall that sci-fi historicals fall into, and a real danger of them, is when you come to some interesting historical mystery or just some big event in, in history, and we find out that the answer to this thing is, aliens did it. Which is really boring. Like, when you... Even yeah. if it's something that doesn't need explaining, like, oh, actually, um, Vesuvius erupted because there were, like, lava aliens living in now i i actually don't mind fires of pompeii i think it's a decent episode and it it does have some some more interesting thematic stuff going on but like it's that kind of thing um annoyingly the only examples i can think of off the top of my head are episodes that i quite like like the eaters of light but um i think it, it is it's a danger of kind of uh, oh, the unicorn and the wasp. There's a, an example. I know one that we, I know one that you don't like. Haunting of Villa Diodati. Oh. How did Mary? It wasn't even a mystery, but how did Mary Shelley come up with Frankenstein? We'll get to Haunting of Villa Diodati. <laughs> Believe me, we'll get to it when we get to my third category. I think what you were saying is quite. It, that's quite interesting as well in terms of like. I think we said this with Pyramids of Mars. Maybe not in the podcast, but I'm sure we discussed it where it can be deployed in quite a problematic way to, yes, to say, like, yes, non-European, non-white people couldn't possibly have done these things in history. It was the aliens, you know. Yeah, for sure. That's um, that's actually the next point I was coming to. Like, we've already come across a couple of examples of that in the classic series on this podcast, and unfortunately, there are many, many more. And, like... <sighs> Yeah, it definitely it definitely runs the risk of just full on being racist. Yeah. And having kind of just being bad history as well. In a different it's another aspect to what you were just saying there Jacob really about the kind of liberal view of history as a, a constant linear progress. And actually one of the reasons I know Bethany you've mentioned this before one of the reasons I like Eaters of Light for instance is the way um this that exchange that you always talk about between Bill and the Roman soldier which yeah. kind of suggests a very different approach to to gender and to, se- to sexuality specifically, I guess, mm. in that instance. But it's like a, a kind of 
a sly bit of undercutting of that that kind of that narrative that I think works very well. Uh, and also, I think I'll come back to this in a bit as well. But I think a lot of the time when the historical settings work best is when there is a contemporary resonance as well. Mm. And so I think the danger is quite often that the historical setting... Actually, this is something you talked about, Jacob, with regard to uh, the woman who lived again. That, that the historical setting becomes a backdrop. It becomes mm-hmm. like the, the kind of, you know, the painted backdrop of a play against which the actual story is set. Mm. The two things don't really, like, interact. Woman Who Lived, I think, is a very good example of that, actually. And it becomes kind of tokenistic. It becomes kind of like... Next Doctor, I think, actually, we talked about this with regard to that, uh, is kind of a story set in... Not even in Victorian times, in Victoriana. Just because, like... Oh, well, you know, Victorian aesthetics play well, especially at Christmas. Let's just kind of do a Victorian story. Why not? It tries to do something with, like, industry, but I don't think it works. And gender. Oh, yeah. But that really, that really doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anything else before we move on to the next category? I'm saving up my takes. I mean, the only thing I would say is, like, a last kind of thing is I feel like the kind of you know this this kind of liberal vision of linear progress that i think does surface in the program quite a lot i think fundamentally comes out of how the program was set up in the first place you know like in the 60s kind of i, I don't know you get you you get this narrative and i think it's one that's come back recently as well you know particularly in discussions of like doctor who's always been political which it has but you do hear a lot of people who go oh, well, it had the first female producer and the first Indian director, and therefore it was an extremely progressive, like, you know, like, very, like, radical show. It's like, well, that's one side of it, but the other side of it is that it was extremely didactic, you know, and it was about teaching kids, and it was to do with... And that's why you have Ian and Barbara as a science teacher and a history teacher, and it comes out of that sense of the BBC have to, you know, kind of instill a certain, really, like, set of beliefs, I suppose, and... um Obviously, I think things have, you know, things have moved on from that somewhat. But like, I do think that's an element of it that's still there. Also, those initial kind of what we might see as progressive moves in terms of who was hired for behind the scenes did not necessarily continue. Well, exactly. Which is the perfect rebuttal to this idea yeah. that like things are constantly improving because it's what like thirty, forty years then before we get the next director who's a person of color it's a oh long, it's more than that it's a long time yeah i think it like it was series 11 i think so it's or 12 very, i can't like, even remember it does kind of offer the ideal refutation of this thing that yeah. things are just gonna constantly improve and mm. all of that well i mean actually jacob what you were just saying there about the kind of the original uh educational purpose Leads me neatly onto the the second category, uh, which is the other side of the coin, which is the pure historical, mm. uh, as it's called, which is basically a historical episode in which the Doctor uh, and companions are the only anachronistic element, and they are the only vestige of sci-fi. And this really plays into the show's early kind of educational roots because it's very much let's go to this bit of history. And just kind of have a look at it. I mean, it's, it's more than that. There's there's usually something else going on. But, like, there's a lot of... It's it's something you see quite a bit in... 
the Hartnell era, especially uh, early on in the Hartnell era. So, like, the Aztecs, the Romans, um, Marco Polo, the Reign of Terror, the Massacre. And it what's kind of odd about it in that regard is that it falls very quickly out of favour. Around the end of the Hartnell era, it just vanishes. Uh, I think, well, there's the Highlanders, but I think that's almost the last one for a long time. Um, and that's only the second Triton story. Uh, it kind of it makes a, an effort at resurfacing a couple of times. I mean, there's Black Orchid in um, season 19 and Peter Davison's first season, which is kind of a strange beast of a story that I like more than I should, probably, but it doesn't quite work. And then there have been stories since that I think have like come close. Weirdly enough, I think an episode that I deliberately haven't mentioned because I was kind of coming on to it. Demons of the Punjab, I think, comes remarkably close to being a pure historical because mm-hmm. the sci-fi element actually has nothing to do with the plot. Well, not much to do with the plot. It's much more thematic. It's we- a misdirection of sorts. Isn't exactly, it? yeah. So because of that, I think that's part of what I think makes that a really successful episode, actually. Yeah. Well, actually, Jacob, I'll turn to you first because I know... You've said in the past, actually, that you are, like, an advocate for the return of the pure historical. So, yeah. why? <laughs> um, I get very frustrated sometimes with sci-fi historicals, or I think I've heard them refer to as pseudo-historicals as well. But Yes, um, yes, yes. I get very frustrated with them when they're in a really interesting historical setting that you could get a lot out of, and you could get a really good story out of just on its own. And then... There's a sci-fi element which almost takes the attention away from that. You know, I think there are particular historical moments where there's enough drama just in that period, <laughs> you know, without you needing to add an extra element. I mean, I mean, what I was saying about the woman who lived, I feel like that's a good example. The English Civil War is enough on its own. And also, like you were saying, like, you know, me is kind of a, a sci-fi character there anyway. But yeah, like so, I, I find myself finding several episodes often that um, I wish had been pure historicals. So, like the Witchfinders is a prime example. Mm. I would have liked that as a pure historical. Maybe Rosa as well. I don't know. Like, I, although I do, I I do kind of sympathise somewhat because I think Rosa is a very difficult one to do anyway. Mm. But um, yeah, I think in terms of how I would like pure historicals to be brought back. I don't want them to be brought back in the kind of very didactic way that you were saying, you know, that we were discussing about kind of with the first Doctor. They're important for making a comment on particular historical periods. And like you say, for making analogies with the present. But I think you should do it more through kind of character development and theme and have like real kind of emotional content for people to engage with and to make a comment on the historical period through that, rather than, you know, saying, as kind of the Chibnall era has sort of gone back to at times, in 1859, X, Y, and Z happened, or whatever, or I remember studying this in school. But yeah, and I also, if if they were brought back, I would like to see them made less Euro and kind of British-centric as well. Which, to, to be fair to the Chibnall era, I think they've sort of tried to do... You know, it's yeah. stuff like Demons of the Punjab and so on. Like, I think they have at least attempted to do that. But yeah, no, I just, I think 
I think TV's in a very different place now to what it was in the 60s. And I think, there, you know, if you were to write something that was historical, you could do something that was more like historical drama, but still made a really incisive point. Like you say, I think someone like Sally Wainwright is, is, is the sort of person who could have done something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the advantages of the pure historical is that it it almost by its nature tends to avoid that kind of uh, very tokenistic backdrop sort of thing mm. that we were talking about. Like, if you're going to get a full episode out of the setting, you have to engage with it on some level, even if that's just the kind of weird sort of comedy stylings of the Romans or something like that. It's still kind of there's still something going on with the nature of, like, what ancient Rome was like and, you know, the fact that, like, you know, for instance, the buying and selling of slaves is necess- is kind of very central to the, the plot of that episode and that kind of thing. So for my views on pure historicals, I feel like it is kind of, de- it is necessary for me to point out that um, I am not familiar at all, really, with any of the actual Doctor Who examples of pure historicals. A very long time ago, I think I watched and certainly listened to audio versions of some of the early Hartnell stories that would have been pure historicals but that's kind of it for my exposure to that so basically to be fair half of them are missing that's why I had to listen to an audio reimagining of Marco Polo I think yeah probably um but yes anyway (laughs) I say probably um, yes that sounds about right I had a vision it came to me in a dream (laughs) Anyway, um, so I'm kind of imagining what I think a pure historical would look like based on all of my exposure to historicals in Doctor Who basically being the pseudo or the sci-fi historical and the overlap with celebrity historical that I'm sure we'll get onto. Hmm. That being said, I do think that there are clearly times where there has been some kind of bargain made between engagement with the setting or having a sci-fi element Hmm. and I think every single time that the deal is made in favour of having the sci-fi element presumably on the assumption that well this is Doctor Who it's a science fiction show so we have to have aliens or or something otherwise like as if that would sort of break the show somehow Hmm. and I think that there are probably a lot of episodes that would have been more interesting if they just really dug into the actual setting rather than... Because I think the ones that work best of the sci-fi historicals is where the sci-fi element is really integrated into the story, which is the case for some of the examples that I'm sure we'll be talking about next, but I'm thinking particularly of Thin Ice, where it's not even Mm. necessarily like it's more of a fantastical element in as much as it is a sci-fi one. I don't know. But anyway, that's really what the plot is about whilst also being about a particular issue of that period of history. So I think that there are ways it can be done really well, but I think that there is also times, the example foremost in my mind at the moment being The Woman Who Lived, where the sci-fi element feels feels like it's there just to have one as like a box ticking exercise and what that actually means is that the interest that could have been got out of the setting is just completely by the by especially because i think in the woman who lived the like highwayman thing was not even really at its height during the 
interregnum. It's it's funny. I was thinking that earlier, listening back on that episode. I, I couldn't. I, I really don't know enough about it. They tend so to be pastiches, the don't they? When it's a sci-fi historical, which is quite often, yeah. yeah. I think it's especially in the in the new series, actually, just because they tend to have less time to drill into that historical setting. Yeah, they don't tend to make them two parties. I do feel like historicals are kind of the the neglected child of the Doctor Who episode family. <laughs> like I don't I don't feel like the historicals get as much and this has slightly changed with some of the Chibnall era ones actually. I think some of them clearly have a bit more of a budget. But it does seem like they're kind of there because they need to be and not always there because they build interesting plot moments. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some points um in like both Davies and Moffat eras, where it seems like an episode was sort of, well, we should probably put in a historical here, so let's get Mark Atis to write something set in the Victorian era. Bam. Done. Mm. Um, <laughs> which doesn't tend to work that well. But yeah, I think that's it's true. I think there's, there's a thing, actually, that I've noticed Chibnall specifically does, where he will use historical periods kind of interchangeably with geographical settings. So in the mm. same way that, for instance, Revolution of the Daleks pops around between a bunch of countries, as does, um, I know he didn't write it, but Praxius. Mm. Spyfall Part 2 does the same thing, but like chronologically, uh, which is only the beginning of the issues of Spyfall Part 2, I think. But What could be more empowering than rattling through a bunch of prominent historical women in like half an hour and not giving them each of their t- each of them a time to really shine erasing their memories oh shit you're right my bad um <laughs> but yeah I'll, let's not get into spyfall part two too much because no. like we will be here all day <laughs> um anything more about pure historicals before we move on no i think i've been silenced by the thought of spyfall part two so oh no it is a sobering thought um, well, Just silence because of how empowered you feel. Like <laughs> silence will fall. <laughs> so, actually, as you've already kind of alluded to, the third category that I have down, uh, which does cross over with the other two, but particularly the sci-fi historical, is the celebrity historical, which is broadly speaking just a historical centered around a particular famous individual from history. This is very much a new series thing. There's a couple in the classic series that, like, have some element of this. Like, you will get famous people will show up, like Nero in the Romans, for instance. Or, like, a slightly odd example, but George Stevenson in Mark of the Rani. But they don't tend... Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't tend to be focused around that individual in the same way that something like... To take the the earliest example, really, The Unquiet Dead is very focused around Dickens. You know, it's a story based, like, loosely on Dickensian stories. And so Dickens himself takes a prominent role. Now, I'm not a fan of celebrity historicals. I'll say that at the top. And I'll go through a little bit why. But, like, I was trying to come up with an example of one that I think works really well and that I really like. And frankly, I struggled for a bit. In fact, 
What I think is quite telling is that when I did come up with one, it was Robot of Sherwood. <laughs> Which is... You can see why that's interesting, because it's kind of not really about Robin Hood. Uh, it's about the kind of the legend and the story of Robin Well, I mean, Robin Hood is a legend and a story anyway, but like... He's a legend. Yeah, he's an absolute ledge. He's a ledge. But like, it's kind of, it's playing with that notion of what what Robin Hood means as a historical slash legendary figure in an interesting way. Um, and I think usually the more interesting celebrity historicals will kind of have something to do with that. Like, I'm not as fond of Vincent and the Doctor as a lot of people are, and I suspect Bethan may have some things to say about it, but like, I think part of the reason that resonates with people is because it's about Van Gogh as as an artist. It's about his kind of place in art history. And so it's kind of about what he means to be, what his paintings mean to people, and I guess specifically to Richard Curtis. What I was kind of alluding to earlier, and the reason I said we'd get to Villa Diodati, is it kind of, it plays into my central problem with the celebrity historical, which is it's kind of by its very nature, I think, buying into the great man theory of history. For anyone who doesn't know, the great man theory of history is is essentially just the notion that, broadly speaking, history is driven by the actions of specific remarkable individuals. It's the kind of the theory of history whereby you can see the Second World War as basically like a clash between Churchill slash Roosevelt slash Stalin and Hitler slash maybe Mussolini. Uh, just to take one quite broad example of that. And so the problem with the celebrity historical is that to a great extent you're concentrating a historical period as well into a specific individual. And so they tend to focus very much around kind of individual genius. So actually Vincent and the Doctor kind of does that. Uh, but I think the Shakespeare Code is a more obvious example of one that is very much about this one lad who wrote great plays and like how the power of his words is able to do magic, essentially. But the reason I mentioned Villa Diodati is because Villa Diodati... I'm almost impressed by the extent to which it makes this text by affirming that Percy Shelley is so important that his life can be measured against that of, like, untold billions of people, which is a horrifying ethical framework. I mean, we'll, again, we will get to Villa Diodati more at some point. I mean, I also have a big issue with the fact that it ends up sidelining Mary Shelley, but anyway... I'll probably talk more about this, I think, in the future in terms of specific episodes, because it comes up a lot. But that is the basis of my my objection. And it's one that, again, there are, there are celebrity, some celebrity historicals that I like more than others. But as a genre, I think it's kind of... It tends to be a fairly lazy way to approach history. And I think it, like... It buys into some some bad historiography it ends up with just a, a a poor and i think even potentially damaging understanding of what history is i mean for anyone who's listened to this before or who knows us like 
probably aware that I usually work within a Marxist framework. So obviously I object to the great man of history thesis because I think that all history is proceeds through class struggle, essentially. So, yeah, like I, I find the great man of history thing kind of deeply offensive. And I would much rather have historicals that are based around particular historical events or periods yeah. that don't look at it through that, you know, the lens of one particular, particularly famous person. Vincent and the Doctor, because this has been mentioned, I am in slight disagreement because I quite like Vincent and the Doctor. Maybe that's just because I watched it when I was younger, but like I, I don't have as much issue with it in terms of the Great Man of History thing as say like, Villa Diodati. Apart from, I mean, there's the line towards the end that Bill Nye says about um, he was one of the greatest men who ever lived, and that's that's for me the line where it really falls apart. But there's a lot of other stuff in the episode that I think is quite good. And I appreciate the fact that it's at least trying to, even if it doesn't always succeed, it's at least trying to do something compassionate with regards to, like, you know, uh, like a depiction of mental illness. But, yeah, look, broadly, I, I, it's not really the approach that I like. I think, yeah, particular events or periods are the way to go. But, yeah, that's all I have to say, really. Like, I pretty much broadly agree with everything you said. So I'm not as down on the celebrity historical as either of you are, as far as I can tell. Uh, not because I, like, subscribe to the great man theory of history, but just because I think from a perspective of having a show where you can time travel, there is going to be an obvious pleasure and temptation in visiting people that you kind of know who they are. However... I think that the tendency is to pick, as the term celebrity kind of implies, I think there's a temptation to pick people who are already extremely well-known mm. and who you aren't really gaining anything interesting from visiting other than to be impressed by other than the sort of fun of seeing the doctor in the same place as someone someone famous, I don't think that many of them really get beyond that. For example, like in The Witch Finders, you could have had a story about the actual people tried for witchcraft in Pendle, who we do know who they are, but they're just... They were just ordinary people, and that's the point. Like, most of them quite impoverished. But instead, what we get is James I showing up for basically no reason, just to kind of be famous all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I don't have an objection on principle to maybe checking in with known historical figures, even more famous ones than random people in Lancashire and... 17th century but I think that it has to be more thought has to go into it than just like oh why doesn't the doctor visit Shakespeare that would be cool no mm -hmm. because I think and you have to also I think seriously reckon with the impact that meeting the doctor is going to have on that person I think the unquiet dead actually handles this reasonably well for mm -hmm. a celebrity historical because Boy, did they pick the time where it kind of 
could make an impact on him, but ultimately wouldn't matter for meeting Charles Dickens. Mm. And so I'm kind of okay with that. But I feel like you either ha- you have to come up with a reason for why it affected them, but we didn't see the impact of it, or for why it just made no no impact at all. And I also hate the thing of like when they meet historical people and they're obsessed with like their legacy. Hmm. Because what if you meet? It never happens that they meet someone who's like, but Doctor, will they remember me? And they're like, no, actually, um, nobody from the year whatever actually knows who you are but still good work though (laughs) because that would be really strange but it's just kind of annoying and also my issue with Vincent and the Doctor which I'll voice now I haven't actually watched it in a long time so I don't want to go too harshly on the bits that I don't remember that well but I feel like having been taken to a future where he is lauded for being this great artist and his paintings are worth millions I think Vincent van Gogh would have been well within his rights to be like, okay, the Doctor and Amy, what are you going to materially do for me now? Because I'm so great and my life sucks. But the actual, like, ultimate conclusion is like, well, actually, we believe that in order for you to make these great paintings, your life kind of has to keep sucking. So if you could just keep at it, that would be great. And I just find that very sad. And if any time traveller ever comes to visit me, if I ever do something important, I'm going to be like, okay, but could you help me right now, please? Because it's all very well to know that you're going to have this impressive legacy, but I don't know. That's just my dark take on Vincent and the Doctor, for anyone who was wondering. I mean, that's an extremely dark take that I never thought of before. Um, I mean, like... (laughs) The, the the way the way I kind of read it more was, and I feel like the way it's framed in the episode is kind of, this is something that, you know, may make him feel better temporarily, but it's not a it's not a, a fix. And I don't know, like like to me, it felt more like you can't. It felt more like it was saying you can't just wave a magic wand and make everything better for someone who is suffering with mental illness. That was more kind of what I got from it. And I was kind of worried that they would do the opposite of that and be like, okay, well, now you've seen this, so you're fine, you know. Because you know, they go back at the end, don't they? And kind of things are still the same and he still died at the same age and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, I don't know. That That's really dark, though. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that before. Sorry, I guess it just kind of like, it bothers me when the whole like tragic artist thing... Mm. Yeah, I do think they play that up too much. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so as well. They do. They flirt with that a bit too much. Yeah, the couple of other points I want to pick up on there, with regard to a lot, a lot of what we've been saying, like going back to Rosa, I think that's quite an interesting example of like an episode that um, actually I think for all its flaws does strike a careful balance, where it is about Rosa Parks. You know, that's, um, it's fairly evident from the title. But, well, for one thing, I think Rosa Parks is actually quite a good choice for that kind of thing because she is, like, famous for being an ordinary person um, who just did something that sparked a movement more than anything. 
it probably goes a bit too far in that regard because uh, I know I've heard some people argue that it, it erases the fact that she was like an activist as well before that point. But like, I think it does a good job of using her kind of self-consciously as a microcosm for a larger movement, which kind of is her historical significance and making it clear that there is a movement in place already before she refuses to give up her seat. So it's about that kind of turning point. And uh, now I think how it goes about that is extremely flawed, as we've said. But like, yeah, we'll we'll go into that in more detail. I think. I, I mean, my my biggest problem, I think, is actually the fact that it's framed around Graham specifically. Mm. But anyway, mm. park that for the moment. I think uh, to go back to the Shakespeare Code, actually, I think that's probably the crassest example of the like the impact on the Doctor. Where, like, it does this constant stupid thing of the Doctor will quote something from a Shakespeare play and Shakespeare will be like, oh, I'll use that. That that one line completely shorn of all context. I'll just throw that into a play in five years' time. Yeah, I mean, I really don't like the Shakespeare code, as may be evident. But I potentially think there would have been interesting things to do with a, the Doctor meets William Shakespeare story. Mm. But I just... I just think that, like, you'd have to have more of an idea going into it about why you were picking Shakespeare, why that was going to be interesting, other than just, like, oh, it'll be a laugh. Like, mm. people love Shakespeare. Like, whatever. And not have I mean, it's Roberts f- write it, which is... Well, well yeah. that's a good start, yeah. generally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I'm just thinking now that the, the one bit in City of Death where um, he's reading Hamlet and... And he says, like, bear arms against the sea of trouble. That's a mixed metaphor. I told him it was. That's, like, funnier and more interesting and has has more to do with Shakespeare's actual work than the entirety of the Shakespeare Code. There's also the implied but never physical presence of Leonardo in City of Death. Oh, true, yeah. Which is, I think, very fun and more effective, really, than if they'd had... Leonardo show mm. up for a scene. It, I think there are ways to play around with these kind of big historical figures mm. and actually have more fun with it than if you'd just shown them. Yeah. I mean, I think it also... Part of the problem is when the Doctor is constantly shown to be friends with all kinds of historical figures, you get into dodgy places like... I mean, we've talked before about the the oddness of the Doctor being friends with Churchill. That's, I think, a particularly egregious example. Especially, I think I may even have mentioned it at the time, but, like, especially when it gets to, like, big Finnish audios where the seventh Doctor is matey with Churchill, which is one of the strangest combinations imaginable. Like, whatever about the eleventh. Nobody thought about that. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange, wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. We've talked actually quite a bit about 
specific examples. Um, so I don't want to labour the point too much. But I did come up with a few examples of... We've talked quite a bit particularly about where historicals get it wrong or whether they don't sort of focus right. So I want to pick out a few examples of ones that I think get it very right. And actually, as it happens, we've already mentioned a couple of the ones that I want to talk about. The first one, I'll actually start with the one that we haven't mentioned yet, which is Ghostlight. Uh, and Ghostlight, I actually think, is almost like the gold standard of historicals. Just because it is so incredibly detailed. There's so much kind of density to it. In kind of the, the language that's used, a lot of it is kind of quotation and paraphrase from contemporary novels, actually, like Victorian uh, novels and other literary products. There's the, I can't remember what it's called offhand, the, the song, the music hall song. Um, something to do with going to the zoo, yeah, yeah. which is like an actual Victorian music hall song. A lot of the uh, the furniture is authentic. It's just it's incredibly detailed in all of that regard, which is great in itself. But also, one of the reasons that setting works so well is because it's so tied in with the thematic material uh, in terms of evolution, which is kind of one of the big themes. Tantwood has a bit of a go. Well, he doesn't have a go because he loves the story, but he talks about how it's kind of a slightly weird time frame because it's like 1880s rather than 1850s, um, which is fair. But at the same time, these kinds of discussions were still occurring in the kind of the zeitgeist at the time. But it's also it's about conquest and it's about colonialism because it's about um, Josiah's attempt to kind of become the king of of the earth by replacing the crown Saxe Coburg. It's kind of, it's an inversion of Victorian colonialism, essentially, just turned back on itself. Which is why I think it's so enormously clever to have that happening in an authentic-looking Victorian house. And moreover, we'll come back to this um, with another of my examples, but it's something that, like, it's something that arises from beneath because the, the ship, Light's ship, is under the house. So there's almost a sense that it is like it's the subconscious, it's the buried rising to kind of consume what's above it, uh, which is what happens. Uh, I mean, it's, it's what happened with Josiah, but it's also what happens when light comes up in the third episode. I mean, the other thing to, that's worth saying about it, I think, is I talked about contemporary resonance. And like basically every McCoy story, it is basically about Margaret Thatcher, who specifically used... The phrase Victorian values in her election campaigns, uh, particularly in the early 80s. And so it's very much about, yeah, these are this is what Victorian values are. I didn't know that was where that phrase come from. I, am, I mean, I don't I don't know that it originates there, but certainly it's like a, a, a sort of Tory slogan. Yeah. It's interesting, like a lot of things about Ghostlight, it's very interesting to kind of pair it with survival, which is doing a lot of the same mm. stuff, but in a contemporary setting. Mm. And yeah, season 26 is amazing. But yeah, that's why I think that's like such a good example of the marriage of the historical setting and what you want to do with it. Uh, it's so immaculately detailed. But all of that detail is building up this kind of um, uh, this, this kind of thematic material that is being explored. And indeed, that's just one of the ways in which uh, because... Again, season 26 is very kind of interconnected. 
it's just one way of coming at that material, which will become at a different way in Curse of Fenric and a different way in Survival and has been come at a different way in Battlefield. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have things to say about Ghostlight as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I've probably mentioned Ghostlight in the McCoy era, I don't know how many times anyway. But yeah, I think it's great. And um, I agree with pretty much everything you were saying about it, uh, about why it's good. I also think it's really... It's kind of interesting, you know, you were saying there's the kind of analogy between the kind of the contemporary Thatcherite era in which it's produced and the Victorian uh, era that's portraying. And I think the other aspect of it, of course, is kind of um, knowledge and forms of knowledge and, mm. um, you know, kind of uh, how they're tied up with, with colonialism and capitalism, you know, so that there's the you know, the different specimens that are, like, kept in the house. And then there's the the whole uh, thing with light is trying to catalogue different species. Mm. Um, and it's saying, you know, how how can you catalogue all these things uh, when everything's changing? And I think that's a really interesting thing at the time because it's, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's an attack on colonial forms of cataloguing and, you know, you know sort of producing knowledge that look at things in terms of kind of ossified facts rather than like relations and processes. But it's also got a contemporary relevance in the sense of kind of like, you know, the free market and the complexity of the free market and how can you ever know the kind of vastness of it. So, yeah, look, it's it's just, yeah, I mean, we could talk about it all day. But, um, it's just one. We will when we come to season 26. <laughs> I don't really have anything to add to that. I think you're right. There's a there's a there's a kind of a detached rationalism as well that uh, Light represents, which is why he's kind of ultimately defeated by the Doctor saying, "Well, what about the Bandersnatches? What about all of these like fictional things that you haven't catalogued?" And uh, which again, I think, has real kind of implications in terms of the the kind of free market ideology in particular. Actually, uh, the only thing I really have to say about Ghostlight, other than I also really like it. I enjoy how weird a lot of it is. Mm, mm. Like, I think that we don't get enough of just strangeness in Doctor Who sometimes, I think. I think it suffers from particularly, I guess particularly in the historicals, because they feel like they have to sort of represent something with a degree of accuracy, even though a lot of the time it's such a sort of pop culture version of the thing anyway Mm. it's kind of refreshing to see something that goes sort of completely the other direction where it's about capturing what is strange and peculiar about that era and just really going for it in that sense yeah absolutely Uh, yeah that's true and I think it's kind of we can we can easily think of the kind of the the weird aspects of um weird is a good word to use actually of uh those kinds of stories as representing the sci-fi element but of course the part of the beauty of ghostlight is that the the sci-fi element and the historical element are so interchangeably bound together that you get these kind of these weird like husks with like insect heads wearing, like, Victorian clothes and stuff like that, and the, like, Neanderthal butler 
weirdly one of about three or four Neanderthal butlers in doc- in classic series Doctor <laughs> Who for some strange reason and all of these kinds of things and they all very much kind of work together so to move on then uh, the second story that I want to talk about I'll be a little briefer on this one because we've already actually covered it uh, but again it has been mentioned before and it is The Empty Child and Doctor Dances and I'm basically just going to recap what I said in our series one episode that I think, uh, actually, as Jacob mentioned earlier, this two-parter does a great job of replicating the kind of the iconography, but also the like material reality uh, of kind of early 1940s London. And again, as I mentioned before, the way that it uses everyday objects then as a source of horror obviously the gas mask but also the typewriter the gramophone all of these kinds of things and so it turns the almost the kind of detritus of everyday living into something actually funny enough to go back to what bethan said about the last one into something weird into something uncanny actually mm. and the other point of course about empty child doctor dances that i made before which is less positive is i think it can also illustrate some of the pitfalls of Doctor Who historicals in terms of the notion that the that comes up a few times voiced particularly by the Doctor by other characters of like the sort of national myth of the Blitz the notion of like I think as the Doctor puts it at one point one little island kind of stood alone which is untrue apart from anything else uh, but more importantly I think it uh, well it's not that that's not important but it's it's a very kind of it's a polemical view of history. It's a view that is married to to inherently to ideology and as we've seen in recent years, that very much lends itself to a kind of right wing and even far right populism very easily. It's very easy to tie it to xenophobic notions of kind of British purity, if you like. So I think it's it's a relatively small part of the story, but it is kind of, it is something that I think is worth mentioning and that does jar rewatching it now, just because it feels like, it's a, it's a way in which I suppose any view of history always represents the time in which it reflects the time in which it is made, because it might well be made the same way now, but certainly I think... It's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be a sense of how that reflected on kind of contemporary view of what Britain is post-Brexit, essentially, now. I mean, I did kind of say my, as we all did, I did kind of say my piece on this when we did our episode on series one. But just to reiterate, in light of what we were talking about, about celebrity historical, I very much appreciate the fact that Dr. Constantine which is, I believe, his name, is not famous, and nobody is famous, but him in particular, it's not like he's known for anything now. He's just a nice man who does good things, and that's enough, really. And that's something that I would like to see more characters like that in historicals and less shoehorning in of a random famous boy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's an episode very centred on the experiences of ordinary people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a lot to add to that because I think that's pretty much, yeah, everything I would have said. But um, 
I don't know. I think the only other thing that's quite interesting is obviously the whole kind of like um, the medical thing that's at the centre of it, you know, with the, the kind of um, the nanogenes and all of that stuff. And, you know, you get the kind of comment at the end about the welfare state. Don't forget the welfare state, which is, is really interesting now because obviously, like, I've kind of been, you know, the last year I've kind of been looking kind of at the welfare state and kind of the history of it fairly extensively. And I think something's interesting compared to when we first talked about that a long time ago now is that I think it that's kind of, you know, could be seen as kind of a more progressive a more positive element of the of that particular episode as compared to what you were saying about the one little island and how problematic that is but also i think those the two things actually seem to have been weaved together quite a lot historically is what i've realized since we recorded the last since we recorded that episode because those appeals to like a, a, a you know a, a unified public and like a kind of like golden social democratic era also play into a kind of nostalgia um, and kind of ignore the fact that that welfare state, whilst it was very good, and you know, you know, look, it 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 helped a lot of people. It also was based upon Britain's wealth as a result of empire and and debt and all the rest of it. And um, yeah, so I think that's something that's maybe the only thing I'd kind of add to what we said the last time. I mean, actually, um, you've just crystallized something for me as well in terms of. It's an interesting example of the kind of the interrelationship of the historical setting and the sort of sci-fi element, because it's an episode where the the whole plot of the episode, the whole like damage that has been done to history here, is just set in motion completely accidentally, and um, by the crash of the the ship and the escape of the nanogenes. So it's an interesting example of where the the sci-fi setting literally crashes into the the historical setting and inherently just causes damage to it Mm -hmm. even completely inadvertently so i think there's there's something i haven't quite worked that thought out but i think there's something going on there and then the third episode i I really wanted to talk about which actually which again we've kind of gestured to already is thin ice which i think for similar reasons to um ghost light in particular it's an episode which really matches its its historical setting to to the, its uh, thematic material, so it's an episode about Regency London, the kind of thing that you would expect to see in like period dramas. Mm. Bethan and I have been talking a lot about period drama as a term recently, and how mm-hmm. kind of weirdly loaded that is. And uh, we won't go into it now, but it is very interesting to think about. It's just been me going around the house shouting, "Well, is X a period drama then?" <laughs> about like random things set in history. So mm. just fill in your own examples. And we, and it's weird because I always have a definite answer, but can never explain the answer. <laughs> mm. It's really strange. But anyway, so it's about that. But it's a and it's also about a very specific point in history. It's about the Frost Fairs, which are like just this interesting kind of historical footnote. But it's also about exploitation. It's about the Industrial Revolution. It's about empire. It's about the notion that Regency London is literally built on the suffering of a creature. It's a beautiful literalizing of the of the thematic content. It's also an interesting one in terms of representation. In terms of historical representation of BAME people in British history. 
obviously there's Bill, and Bill is concerned about, like, how she is going to be treated in this setting quite reasonably. And interestingly, the Doctor kind of slightly plays that off, as he has done in, in other stories. And it's like, oh no, it's fine, there's lots of black people here. Which there are, uh, as we see. But um, they're not like they're not the people benefiting from this society. And so I think it's it's a rare story that actually kind of has the courage to to tackle that and to to say like, well, unfortunately, aspects of a person's identity uh, are going to place them in some kind of danger if they go time traveling. A lot of stories in the new series have kind of. I mean, the classic series never really had to. But the in the new series, have chosen to kind of sidestep that in one way or the other. The Shakespeare Code, for instance, my repeated punching bag for this episode, the Shakespeare Code, is like, oh, no, there were black people in Elizabethan London. It's fine. Which, yeah, there probably were, but, like, hmm. And Martha's the inspiration for the Dark Lady, oh, which God. is definitely flattering. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I know, like, I know Thin Ice is a, it's a story we've, We've talked about it quite a bit before. I know it's kind of a favourite of all of ours, so I'm curious to get your your takes on that. I mean, I would just say about the... the um, I think this is another reason why I'm kind of an advocate for pure historicals, what you were saying about the kind of the racism and the way that it sidesteps. I think pure historicals are quite a good place where you can kind of have the space to deal with that stuff because you are just dealing with what was happening at the time rather than having this kind of sci-fi element that's almost pushing that stuff out, or could push that stuff out. I mean, it doesn't always. But that being said, yeah, I agree. Like, Thin Ice is, like, a a, a great example of how you can have a sci-fi element that works really well with the historical setting. And as you were saying, that kind of the, the creature in the, the Thames kind of embodies the, the themes really, really well. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to add, because uh, I agree with pretty much everything you've said but uh, all I will say is um, bring back Sarah Dollard which I've been saying mm, yes. for a long time <laughs> oh actually one more thing I do want to say about it and this is another aspect of this episode that I talk about a lot so I think I've probably this has probably come across in episodes before but it is also an interesting example of it's not just that it like depicts a historical injustice well a couple of historical injustices actually both the kind of the more general exploitation and also the like overt racism of the like terrible man but also we we get to see the doctor specifically stand up to these things both on a larger level in terms of freeing the creature or helping to free the creature and on an individual level by punching the racist man it's one of my Which, favorite like, peter capaldi moments i think mine too <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm a big fan beautifully timed as well i think that was around the time that the the punching Nazis discourse was like at its height from the point of view of like, we've talked a lot about historical settings, but not so much about like how one acts within them. And I think that's a really interesting example of the doctor modeling um, a kind of behavior within a historical setting that is at odds with that setting. Uh, But that is clearly something that we are going to approve of and is also like firmly at odds with, various things that he says in that episode which is also an interesting kind of resonance but yeah i think what i like about thin ice is lots of things like everything about it but anyway (laughs) it's becoming a more popular choice to do a kind of colorblind 
casting across all sorts of TV and film, but in period dramas or historical dramas as it pertains to this discussion. And I think that that can work really well and really effectively. I'm not against that as a thing. But I think that sometimes if you do purely colour blind casting rather than what I think is known as like colour conscious casting, you end up with a situation where it sort of looks as if, if you're presenting what is ostensibly a kind of true version of history, you start to run the risk of minimising what was very real oppression that was suffered by people of colour in the past. And I think it is worth having these moments and maybe even building on what we've already had in episodes such as Thin Ice to get at some of the complexities of that. Like, it's not worth pretending that things weren't how they were in the past just to maintain a happy family atmosphere Mm. when a large portion of the viewership of the show will know themselves personally that racial prejudice, all of the sorts of like prejudice is out there, still is real, and it feels disingenuous to pretend that it just wouldn't have been a thing and also it risks kind of minimizing times when when we when the doctor and the companions travel to times when it probably wouldn't have been as much of a thing or at all a thing mm. like east of light being an yeah, example yeah, the diverse composition of roman legions for various reasons <laughs> is an interesting counterpoint to what we see in thin ice and shows how racism hasn't it's not always been a thing that is just getting better it's yeah. It's a construction. Mm. But yeah, so that wasn't really about Thin Ice, but I just thought it was worth kind of raising. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, like I'm using these examples as a way to point to bigger things anyway, so I think that makes a lot of sense. And Thin Ice feels like a good example of what I would like to see historicals do a lot of the time in, t- in terms of like really everything we've talked about. And it's one of the one of the many reasons why I want to see more from Sarah Tollard. One that we haven't mentioned, but that I would feel like I want to raise as an example of a good historical story is Human Nature, Family of Blood. Oh, interesting. Just because I think that there's a sensitivity to the period in which it is set, so it doesn't make the like trappings of it feel at all just like set dressing. It's very enmeshed in that world. Hmm. There's interesting themes around kind of war versus pacifism and also there is acknowledgement of the particular hardships that Martha is facing. Mm, That's true actually. And the like labour she's having to do as a servant but also kind of for the doctor who is essentially out of action for what 95% of that two-parter. I think that there could potentially be more in that regard, but it still is, especially as it happens in the same series as the much maligned Shakespeare Code, (laughs) Mm. I feel like it's kind of worth throwing that one into the mix. And also just because I think it's good and interesting. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, the the thing with Martha is a particularly interesting example in this regard because uh human nature family of blood obviously is a story that is reworked for tv anyway and mm. uh, reworked for 
among other things, a different doctor and a different companion. Reworked quite heavily in that regard, in fact. And whereas, like, Benny spends most of the novel just kind of lounging around the village, feeling slightly sorry for herself, Martha, as you say, is, like, performing physical labor in the school um, and, like, being looked down on by everyone, including John Smith. Mm. And so it's a... It's a really interesting. I I think particularly the decision to have John Smith be kind of a man of his time in that regard is quite a brave one and like one that really pays off because it like draws attention to the kind of historical contingency mm-hmm. going on in this regard. And um what's her name? Joan Redfern is also quite racist. Mm-hmm. Which also helps because she is otherwise presented as a very sympathetic character. Yeah, it's not just uh Awful posh lad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it really shows. Viserys Targaryen. Viserys Targaryen. Oh, yeah, son of mine. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, Jake. It really shows the kind of how racism is kind of so widespread and endemic by by Mm. presenting it in that way, which I think Mm. is interesting. I mean, the only other thing that I wanted to mention, and this is kind of cheating because it's sort of not historical, but also Mm. is, is I'd be quite interested to do more stuff with like. You know what you were saying, kind of like analogies between the contemporary and the historical period. I'd also be really interested to do more kind of like hauntological stuff in terms of like periods bleeding in, like past periods kind of bleeding into the present, which I think is something that you can do really well in sci-fi. Anyway, I mean, they've kind of done it with the riff thing, sort of, but not really. But like, I think one place where they kind of do do it, even though it's not really historical, is The Awakening. With uh, mm. with Peter Davison, mm. you know, because you get this thing that's buried in the church coming back from the past, and there's the re- historical reenactments of the Civil War, but it's also got a kind of contemporary relevance because it was aired, I think, during the Miners' Strike, or around that time. It would have been produced around that time, and so it does kind of do the the kind of thing that David Peace does in GB eighty four of kind of drawing in an analogy between the English Civil War and the miners' strike as a kind of civil war as well, which I think is interesting. So that's something I'd like to see them do more of, but I don't know. I don't know if they will. I am also keen on... Um, this is just what you were saying there made me... put me in mind of Silver Nemesis, which is why I'm talking about this now. I am also keen on when they pastiche the dialogue of specific oh, areas, yeah. but when it is done well. And this is kind of pertains to Ghostlight as well, actually. Mm, yeah. But when it's done well and to humorous or otherwise interesting effect, I think it can be really a really interesting thing to do with historicals mm. to kind of give that sense of difference. But I understand that sometimes you want to have more of a sense of commonality between people throughout history, but I'm a sucker for a good pastiche. A good chicken-hearted knave. Chicken-hearted oh. <laughs> knave! <laughs> um, yeah, well, actually, I think um, something else that is interesting that is kind of pertinent to what both of you have just said and something that comes up a fair bit in various ways is the notion of Doctor Who being haunted by its own past. Mm. So I guess the most overt expression of this probably is um, the Time War. Which, like, Elizabeth Sandifer explores at length as being a sort of, um, a, like, extended metaphor for the sort of trauma to the show of its 
hiatus slash cancellation or whatever you want to call it. But there's, I mean, I think it's interesting when Doctor Who revisits its own past or like a past in which it was airing. So, I mean, the example that comes to my mind and it came to my mind because we were just talking with Paul Cornell is Father's Day (laughs) because it's going back. It's technically a a historical in that it's set in the past, but it's set in the past that a lot of people watching would remember. And it's set in a past that is in dialogue with the past of Doctor Who Mm -hmm. because it's set at a time when season 24 would have been airing and like it's kind of self-conscious in Paul Paul Cornell's case because it's the beginning of the McCoy era the Doctor that he has written for quite a lot and the Doctor who got him and really probably all of the other writers on series one into the show uh, both as fans but especially as writers I think Moffat was the only one who didn't write for um, the seventh Doctor in one way or another and so it is this kind of self-conscious thing, but it's also this this notion of kind of almost a feedback loop of Doctor Who feeding on itself from the past. You get it a little bit more. There are other stories that are kind of set during the time of its own transmission. Again, Elizabeth Sandra talks about this, like um, Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon, for instance. I think I may even have mentioned this when we talked about it. Technically takes place in the gap between the war games and Spearhead from Space, if you want to think about it from that, like that, which I can't imagine very many people. Do. Well, no, some people definitely do nothing. <laughs> but again, there is this notion of like it's a history in which Doctor Who is kind of a part. There's also actually, I'm Boo Boo the Fool. How did I not think of the most obvious example, which is Remembrance of the Daleks, mm. when Ace nearly watches the first episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> Uh, and so again there is this kind of this thing this notion that Doctor Who is itself part of history part of the current of history and so it is itself subject to history yeah and I think the program needs to reckon with itself you know and it needs Mm. to reckon with its own past and the things that are wrong with it and what's problematic about its roots which yeah is interesting and I don't really think they've done that a lot. There have been attempts, I think. I, yeah. I like... Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be interested when we come to do Twice Upon a Time, because I think that is an episode that actually tries to do that, to mm. some extent at least. Mm. It tries to set up the the first female Doctor at the very end by being like, hey, so this show's been really sexist in the past. The official Twitter tweeted a sad JPEG at the time when there was like the huge amount of Black Lives Matter pro- protests. Oh saying yeah, how they've always supported. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, what was it? I can't remember if it was people of color or like just black people on the show and in the creative team. And I was like, mm. Have you though? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been like nearly sixty years. That is a huge claim to make mm. that in a racist society you have consistently done that and also I can probably find examples where it's <laughs> yeah. not true. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's work, so much work to be done. Yeah. So we'll move on to the like third facet of this episode, if you like. Third phase. Which is, yeah, which is, I mean, we've looked to the future a little bit already, but like... Something we've touched on a few times now is the notion of like where we would like the show, what we would like the show to do with historicals in the future, and where, and I mean that in quite a literal sense, we would like it to go. 
And so we've come up with a few settings each, historical settings that we would like to see the show visit. And so I think what we'll do is I'll do one of mine, then Bethan, you can do one of yours, and Jacob, you can do one of yours. And then we'll kind of, we'll keep going in not necessarily that order, but we'll, we'll see what happens. One of mine is a fully worked out plot synopsis. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> I don't have anything like that level of detail for any of mine, I will say now. I will say all of mine, none of mine are set in Britain or Western Europe or uh, America. Just on the basis that, uh, actually no, North or South America, not that South America has been explored very much. Just on the basis that the overwhelming majority of historicals are in sort of like particularly British kind of Anglo-American settings and so one of the things that I would like the show to do more is to branch out of that it's again another of the many reasons why I really like Demons of the Punjab is that it does that with a view to how that impinges on British history as well in kind of both directions both how British colonial history obviously impinges on the partition of India and Pakistan uh, but also how that feeds back into a, a British immigrant narrative. But anyway, so my first one, my first setting that I would like to see, and this is this is broad, but it's also, it's one that I'm kind of astonished we've never really seen in the show. It's ancient Egypt. Way! Um, and like, before we get floods of emails, I know Big Finish has done it. I know big. We can rule out Big Finish. Big Finish has done everything. We never get floods of emails. We might. This. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know. I know about Aramem. I know there is a Fifth Doctor companion from Egypt in Big Finish stories. But I mean, it's ancient Egypt. You want to see it on screen, surely. Oh, I also know that uh, Dalek's master plan briefly visits ancient Egypt, but also it's missing. So, and the the thing about ancient Egypt really is like, there's so much going on there. It's such an enormous time frame for a start. There's like three, four thousand years of history in there. You can drop in at any point, and it would be interesting. Do you want to drop in at like the 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 height of the the new kingdom? Do you want to drop in at the building of the pyramids? Do you want to drop in at like the reign of any number of pharaohs? Do you want to drop in towards the end of of what we think of as ancient Egyptian history at the point where like you've got got this blend of Hellenic and African civilization broadly North African civilizations I mean sure that's an interesting thing in itself that kind of cultural fusion and like you can look at kind of the you know the glory of this great African civilization or you can look at the the decline of this great kind of empire such as it was and there's so many interesting things you could do with that already. And so, in a way, like, I don't have anything particularly specific to suggest there, just because I think part of the appeal of it is there's so much you could do that, like, you know, pick something. And it's going to be good, mm. most likely, if you do it right. Anyway. So, I mean, Beth, why don't you give us one of yours? Okay, so this is interesting, uh place that we have come to because the one that I had that I was going to talk about at exactly this moment is also ancient Egypt hmm. um, for a lot of the same reasons but also this might be a bit of a dick move slash a controversial move I would 
absolutely want it to like be a soft or hard retcon of Pyramids of Mars, uh, making the point that yes. the people living in ancient Egypt were responsible for their own culture. Yeah. Mm. And what I mean is it can either just be that the story takes place there and just it doesn't mention anything to do with Pyramids of Mars, people are shown doing their own stuff, whatever. Or it could totally be about the Osirens coming and like stealing slash appropriating the aesthetic and visual culture mm. of ancient Egypt and then leaving and not giving them anything in return. It could be that as well. But that would be, I think, harder to pull off and more controversial for people who like Pyramids of Mars. But that was just my <laughs> my sneaky ulterior motive for a story set in ancient Egypt, other than the fact that ancient Egypt, Egypt is just really cool, mm-hmm. and I'd love to like see it, especially if much as it would also be kind of cool to visit, check in with some of the kind of famous boys and gals, like Hatshepsut was the one that I was thinking of, mm. but like, that's just because that would be really cool. It would also just be neat to like, meet some meet some people going about their lives in the kind of spirit of not making everything a celebrity historical that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, snap on ancient Egypt, but it is a very long period of history, yeah. so kind of also not snap <laughs> yeah that's really good and like i yeah i think that's that's such a good idea in terms of doctor who reckoning with its own past as well mm. leads on perfectly from what we've been talking about and mm-hmm. um, so uh, jacob why don't you give us one of yours okay um well yeah so similarly i've tried to go for stuff that is outside of britain and europe uh western europe uh well, i have one exception though and i'm going to start with that Ooh. Um, which is the 1984-85 miners' strike, which oh. yeah, which, which I don't know. Some people probably saw coming, but I certainly wouldn't want it done under the current uh, creative team. Put it that way, and I think you'd have to think about kind of how to handle it. But I don't know. I have a couple. I have a couple of options. Like, I think potentially you could have a sci-fi element in where it's kind of like. Again, like I was saying, the idea of like the past bleeding through, and you can either look back at it from the perspective of deindustrialization and kind of, you know, what happened and what the effect on the community was, or you could look further back from the perspective of the strike and to kind of like other historical moments of struggle within the community. You know, I think that would be interesting, and kind of you use the sci-fi element to kind of get at that. I mean, not necessarily, like, I don't necessarily want, like, an alien turning up or something. I more mean, like, something that's much more, like, subtle and maybe unexplained. But, yeah, I think that would that would be interesting. And I think there's a lot you can get out of, kind of, like, just kind of the the image of mining and something buried underground returning and all of that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, um, well, I mean, a couple of things occurred to me there. Um, the miner strike is interesting because, like... Doctor Who has kind of accidentally interacted with it before. Yeah. Most evidently in the um, case of Androzani, mm-hmm. which is like, I mean, uh, people frequently read as being kind of a reflection of the minor strike as it was airing at about the same time. And like, I mean, we've talked about um, it's a different strike, but we've talked about Monster Appelodon before as well. And the uh, less than ideal way in which that deals with, with minors. But, um, 
Yeah, I think actually, funnily enough, I think I feel like Russell the Davies would be quite open to to aspects of that. Oh yeah, especially like being set in Wales. I mean, to be honest, if I were making that episode, I would probably just make the film Pride, but <laughs> yeah, like the Doctor and <laughs> Companions are there. <laughs> so. Yeah, in the interest of varying up the uh, the order, Bethan, why don't you go next? Okay, sure. So I will say that actually, so this example, I haven't gone quite as far away from Western Europe as you guys. This example that I have next is in Western Europe. My next one, we'll get to it. But this is this isn't the one with like the full detailed summary, so this will be quick. Okay. So I wanted to do be able to do more research into this, but then life got in the way. But basically, my concept is 1360s Kingdom of Navarre. And the reason for this is I think it would be really interesting to visit a country that is in a place that we know, because it's between France and Spain and is now split between those countries. But does not exist anymore because I think that raises a lot of interesting ideas about how we see countries and national borders now versus how we saw them then. Mm. The reason why it's the 1360s is several fold. I don't know. It's because there was a lot of like issues between like who was passing through the country at that time because it was kind of a hundred years war ish era. Also, it was a time when um, the ruler of the kingdom was kind of unusually tolerant of having non-Christian people in the nation. So there was kind of a cultural blend of uh, Christian citizens, but also Jewish and Muslim people there. So I think that's kind of interesting, but it's also an interesting opportunity to just explore how their status was kind of precarious. Because although you can say better than other medieval kingdoms. Like, Jewish people have been expelled from England like a century before, so it's not that great. And so I think there'd be some interesting stuff in terms of, like, maybe analysing some of the... some of the ways that we see the medieval period, both from, like, racists assuming that it was all white Christian people, but also showing that it's not the complete opposite isn't true either i think there'd be something mm. interesting there even if that's just in the background and also the, the the other reason why it's 1360s is because you can have this character right who's there on a diplomatic mission from england and he's called like jeff and everyone like gets to know jeff and like they're hanging out with jeff and whatever and you know jeff's just like he's been around the courts for most of his life He's quite, like, well-educated. He's a bit of a book boy. Like, whenever there's books, you know, he'll be reading the books. He'll be trying to buy the books. And maybe it's never mentioned throughout the entire episode, but this is, like, Geoffrey Chaucer, but we're just not going to talk about it. So it's, like, a celebrity historical, but it's, like, about every other aspect of his life that isn't the thing of him being a writer, because actually having a write- being a writer is your main job has kind of always been a rare thing, I think, but especially then was. I just think that would be really funny and, like, a really interesting counterpoint to the, like, the usual way that we see celebrity historicals. So that's one of my ways of smuggling a celebrity in (laughs) to these suggestions to show how I think it could be done in a more fun and intriguing way. 
but yeah, I just think it's an interesting like cultural blend. There was a lot of different nationalities there. There's a lot of stuff you could do with it. I wish that I had come up with more concrete suggestions of what a plot could be, but I just wanted to like fling a setting out there mm. that nobody else would has probably suggested before. And so that's my idea. Yeah, I think that's... I mean, it's funny because your uh, Chaucer idea is a much, much more successful version of what um, Time Lash tries to do with H.G. Wells. Oh. It's it's, it's really bad. Really bad. Like, both the episode and that specific aspect of it. Like, it gets a lot of very basic facts about H.G. Wells very wrong for a start. But anyway, um, yeah, I think that's great. Um... I like every aspect of that a lot. It's an interesting example of, like, how the show can kind of keep to a vaguely educational remit, but, like, in a way that is not didactic, that is more about exploring aspects of the past that are maybe overlooked, which I think the Chibnall era has tried to do a little bit, Mm. but I don't think very successfully. I'm also just keen to have a story set in, like, the medieval period that is fairly specific and also is kind of concerned with our preconceptions in the same way that I think some of the best historicals are concerned with preconceptions about the era whether Mm. those are born out or not in the episode Jacob what's your next one then well I think one place I don't think we've ever really covered much in terms of the history is China I feel like there's several things in Chinese history that I would want to look at. But the one I was thinking particularly was maybe something set during the Opium Wars. Um, which I think could be, like you were saying about the ancient Egypt and Pyramids of Mars, I feel like it could be an interesting counterpoint to towns of Wang Chiang. Mm. You know, mm, I was just um, thinking that. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't really know exactly what I would do with it. I think it would be a pure historical, for, uh, for sure. But like, I don't know exactly what I would do. But just that's kind of vaguely where I'd like to go and just kind of trying to problematise Britain's awful history (laughs) pretty much. Mm. That would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, oh, there's a lot of potential there. That would be an interesting one in terms of the the kind of the dialogue with, well, particularly in Talents of Wang Chiang, although there's other episodes you could think of there as well, Mm. because it would have to be somewhat implicit. Yeah, but also I think it would be pretty easy to call it to mind mm. for all the talents. I think is probably later in the nineteenth century. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because uh, it's playing with like the Sherlock Holmes stuff, so it must be fairly late. But still, I think it would be it would be pretty easy to call that kind of comparison to mind. Um, actually, in that case, my second one. I was going to do this. This is my third, but my second one I think goes quite nicely with that. Because another place uh, that we've never really seen before, despite its incredibly rich history, is Japan. Mm. And I was thinking a good bit about what part of Japanese history I would want to see. And uh, like I was originally thinking of like the Sengoku period, the sort of warring clans, the like samurai, all that kind of thing. Samurai were around for ages. But then I thought, actually, no. I think the, um, the Edo period, or the Tokugawa period, as it's also called, would be really interesting. Hmm. Partly just culturally, because this is like this extraordinary artistic flowering in like, uh, well, particularly in visual art, but also in like theater. And all this like extraordinary artwork comes out of this period, uh, which then ends up being very influential to Western art down the road. 
And so there's that. There's aesthetically, it would be just such a beautiful place to visit. But the other aspect is this is the period during which I cannot remember the name of it, the actual name of it, but um, this is the period in which Japan had its like isolationist policy, mm. and so this would depend very much on the the casting of the Doctor and companions, I think. But it would be very interesting just to have them in that setting, uh, in a place where like people from well, people from outside of Japan really would have been treated with profound suspicion at the very least. And so there's a there's definitely a danger of going too far with that, I think. But it would be it's it's another aspect of and I think it potentially an interesting kind of aspect of where the Doctor and Companions and I think it would be particularly interesting to apply this to the Doctor, by the way. As again, this is something that I think the Witchfinders tried to do, but yeah. But to uh, have that kind of the Doctor as well, I suppose the Doctor's apparent identity work against them in that regard and to to have barriers in place, I suppose, mm-hmm. would be interesting. We know that Scottish accents in some translations of the TARDIS thing come across as Dutch. Oh, which yeah. Which would actually... Dutch people... Oh, that's true, yeah. The, the Dutch were the only people allowed to trade with Japan. So... <laughs> Just doing a like big brain thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if everyone's true. Scottish or pretends to be Scottish. Oh god. But I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I think like again, I have no no semblance of a plot, but like I've been thinking of aesthetics as much as anything, I think, in coming up with these these settings and something that we just haven't seen before. Mm. And so I think it would be really interesting in that regard as well. You could um you could potentially get David Mitchell into writing as well, because uh, the Thousand Autumns of Jacob oh. de Zoo is all about that period, essentially. Oh, um, I haven't read that. Yeah, it's I all about that, that kind of time, uh, when they were only trading with the Dutch and stuff. It's set at the mm-hmm. port, where all the stuff at Dejima, right. I think it's called, yeah. Uh, also, to clarify for anyone who's not sure, this is David Mitchell, the novelist, yeah. not, <laughs> not the comedian. comedian. Because that always needs to come up. Has David Mitchell, the comedian, ever written a book? Because if he does, then that's going to break the whole... I'm sure he must have done, like, a biography he may have or done. something. He, 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 um, I'm not sure if he's done a biography. He does, like, he's been doing columns in the, the Observer and the Guardian for, like, years. So he may have, like, uh, written them up into a book at some point. Or if David Mitchell, the novelist, ever does, a, like, a, a killer sketch comedy mm, show, mm. then... It's yeah. just all going to break down someday. <laughs> yeah, That's well, my he, um, theory. he taught the novelist. Uh, he taught in Japan for quite a few mm. years, I think, and lived there. So, and now lives yeah, in Ireland. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, he's been living there for a long time. So, Jacob, would you like to give us your your third, third and final? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, for the third and final one, I am thinking of the Russian Revolution. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Spicy choice. Yeah, I, I, I know. I just think it would be interesting to have them in that kind of environment. I mean, they've kind of done it with, obviously, the the Reign of Terror in Hartnell's era, which I think is not so successful because it's very long and padded. But I think you could do something really interesting, kind of looking at like the ethics of revolution and the use of violence and the you know kind of. 
obviously what came out of it was kind of horrific and it wasn't really kind of a wasn't really a, a revolution in in the in the kind of more positive sense that you might think of it but a kind of yeah essentially a military vanguard and all of that but i think you could also look at obviously kind of how it came about and the historical conditions you know and kind of the state of tsarist russia as well so yeah i think again i i i definitely do a pure historical with that i wouldn't want i don't think i'd want a sci-fi element in it at all really um, you don't want Rasputin's an alien, no. Well, actually, it's interesting because they I think they did... Well, I think one of the BBC novels called... Is it Wages of Sin? Is set around... I can't remember if it's set in the Revolution, but it's definitely definitely set around Tsarist Russia, and it includes Rasputin. And I haven't, I haven't read it, so I don't really know how they handle it. I think I've got it, but I've not got around to reading it. So they have done that, but on TV we've kind of never seen... We've never seen any Russian history really at all. That's who, as no. far as I can think. Um, there's the God. What's it called? The Ice Warrior on the Russian side. Oh, oh that's true. true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's that. Cold War. The yeah. Episode. Thank you. Yeah. With like authentically Russian actors Liam Cunningham and um, <laughs> Tobias Menzies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. That's that's an interesting one, and that's an interesting one in terms of like. Some of what we were talking about before in terms of historical historical processes and events and that kind of mm. thing. There's, mm. a, there's, there's a lot to do there and a lot of ways yeah. you could approach it, I think. It's probably not that relevant, but I'm reminded of the Tom Stoppard play Travesties, uh, which is about, like, um, it's semi-fictionalized, but there's a particular moment when, in Zurich when um, James Joyce, Lenin, and um, the Dada's poet Tristan Zara we're all sort of there and like working. This was kind of just before the the revolution, uh, and so like it kind of imagines like meetings between them and that kind of thing, which I think is is potentially a fruitful way that a celebrity historical could go. Actually, mm-hmm. but you'd need to have the kind of deftness of touch that Tom Stoppard does, which is probably a, a tall order. I think there's an extreme danger in picking these moments where there are lots of celebrities in one place and doing a book oh, yeah. a celebrity historical yeah. <coughs> the haunting of Villadiadati. <laughs> Which I actually kind of like more than I've been implying, I have to say. I like the first half of it fine. I like the first half of it fine, but the se- I hate the second half so much that it completely outweighs it. So true. Mm. Anyway, I'll do my last one then. Uh, and this this one, I mean, like, the, the Egypt one was open. This is even more open because I don't even have a country for it. I would like to see something Antipodean slash Polynesian, basically. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the reason why I'm not specifying a historical point for this is if you consider history to be written, then it's hard to apply the notion of history to Aboriginal or, or like, Polynesian cultures. But that's part of what's interesting about it. There is this whole expanse of time that, like, we don't really know anything about. This is a place where a sci-fi historical could work, I think, depending on how you did it. Uh, As long as you didn't do it in some kind of horrific way where, like, you know, they're worshipping something as a god and it's actually an alien. Didn't they kind of already do this by implying that Matt Smith's Doctor inspired the Easter Island? um, Kind of. Moai. Yeah. But, um, although I think that was more just, like, 
that it was modeled on him rather than that it was actually worshipped. Oh, okay. But um but yeah, like again, maybe maybe this is coming partly from reading Cloud Atlas, but um I like the idea of like um something in kind of in like an Aboriginal or maybe Maori setting. I would want it to be written or like overseen by someone from that culture, I would say. Yeah. Just because like I think that would be important, not only for, like, sensitivity, but also because I think the point of having a story like that would be to have a perspective that is, like, not a Western perspective, that is kind of almost antithetical in some ways, maybe. Yeah. As I say, I've, I've, this, is, again, is deliberately extremely open, because I don't really have much of a dictate for it, but I think it's something that I would love to see. Mm. And again, I think there would be there'd be an element in which you would be speaking back against... Uh, some aspects of like how the show is things the show has done previously like there's the thing in fort uh fort of doomsday where the the like lizard people have collected some uh australian aborigine people and like they, they're doing a bit of a dance uh for their, their entertainment and edification which is kind of an odd mixture of stuff but um yeah mm. anyway that's that idea, such as it, such as it is. The um, the, uh, mentioning Easter Island, there is as a fourth Doctor novel. I think it's called Eye of Heaven. That is uh, that deals with Easter Island. It's got the fourth Doctor and Leela. It's kind of weird in that it's. I feel like most Doctor Who novels are third person, whereas this one's first person that shifts between several different perspectives, including the Doctor and Leela's. It's bizarre. I didn't like it when I first read it, but that was I was very very young. Like, I just I didn't I even know, know who was I... talking most of the time. Like, hmm. yeah. I don't know how I like the idea of putting Leela as the companion. No, yeah, it's it's companions. weird. Like, it's not good. Hmm. Like, <laughs> but I like the idea of doing something in that kind of setting, mm. and especially if it would be a good reason to bring on like a non-British writer, because I do think that that should be done more it's i can't only think of like one example is there how many non-british writers have there even been on doctor who there have been a few um i could only think of neil gaiman when i tried to like rattle through my brain there. i've got bad news for you neil gaiman's english is he yeah i thought he was american no nope. he lives in america but he's english oh my god you better keep this in the podcast to show my <laughs> ignorance please we just have um, a book called Sydney. american god so i could kind of that's yes. why i thought yeah, yeah, yeah. no no he's british um he looks like he should be american <laughs> um, well, I, well, I so I like mistaken because i heard him talk and he sounded very english but i was like maybe maybe yeah not. no no he's english <laughs> yeah so like um sydney newman who was like the pro- well not the producer but like when the person who first oversaw Doctor Who was Canadian. And there have been a few... I think there have been a couple of Canadian writers over the years. Sarah Dollard is Australian. Mm. Oh. Um, I think there have been one or two other Australian writers. Uh, I don't know that there's ever been an Irish writer, which is interesting. Get out there, Kieran. Oh, that's an, another thing. Um, just sorry, before we move on to your last one. Um, yeah, no, it's okay. I, one thing that I decided to avoid completely from my examples was Irish history because I do not trust the BBC to do Irish history. They just slap some Any... fiddle music over it. Now. Well, exactly. It'll be like that thing from, <laughs> um, God, what was it called? Ascension of the Cybermen. Mm. Just the like fiddle dee weird depiction of, to be fair, not actually Ireland, but still. 
Yeah, I'd be very worried about just every aspect of how they would approach it, unless basically everyone involved was Irish, which is probably doable, to be fair, but, like, hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, um, do you want to do your... Your, your, epic. your epic, yeah. Appropriately so titled. Okay, I wondered if this might be the case. Okay, so it'll become apparent why this is kind of Western Europe and kind of not. But anyway, so the story's called A Thousand Ships. Okay, right. okay. So the scene opens, the TARDIS crew, just imagine whoever your faves are, arrive in like the Greek camp outside of Troy. All your favourite Greeks are there. Odysseus, Tent Boy Achilles, Cousin Boyfriend Patrocles, <laughs> Meninus, that's Menelaus, Angry Meninus, that's Agamemnon, and they're all having a grand old time, it's campy, it's fun, the TARDIS crew get to know them a bit, everyone's having a laugh, I mean, to the extent that they can be when they're all arguing with each other, but you know, it's arguing in a fun way. And they explain that they've travelled very far, like, they've travelled a really long way, very distantly, and the the, ga- the gang are like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Then, for like a sort of special mission or something, they have to go into the city of Troy, maybe because the Trojans don't know who they are and they're not really affiliated with the Greeks. And they get into Troy and they meet everyone there. Good guy Hector, slightly shit boy Paris, everyone. Slightly. Very, okay. <laughs> it, maybe this, this might have a charitable reading of him, okay. <laughs> it turns out they're all Troilus as well. Troilus oh, as well. yeah. And it turns out they're all really nice as well, so they're starting to feel a bit conflicted. Except for one person really doesn't like them, won't associate with them, it's Helen. Helen, nothing to do with them, she hears, she sees them arrive, hears their explanation of how they've travelled really far and whatever, and she just ignores them completely. So it's getting to like the feeling that there might be a fight, and the TARDIS crew are all kind of like, oh no, we don't really want this to happen, because we kind of like everyone. But then they also sort of don't fully feel like it's going to be quite real. They think that it because everyone's so like, oh yeah, heroes, it feels like it belongs to this kind of myth world. But then the fight happens, and it's like actually really brutal. They're sort of watching it from the battlements. Like, people are dying and at least one person that they've met on, e- on like, one side dies. I'm thinking it's Troilus, okay, because he's really young. And then they bring all the dead back in. TARDIS crew don't know what to do, what to think. Hecuba, Troilus' mum, is, like, weeping over him. And then someone, either the Doctor or one of the companions, is like, wait, but this isn't supposed to happen. He isn't supposed to die yet. And then Hecuba is like, of course he's not supposed to die yet. He's like 14. And it's like really like, they're like, oh shit, he's actually dead. And then Helen comes up to them and is like, your time travelers, aren't you? Go back and make sure that this doesn't happen. Like bring them all back. And then some. Then the doctor's like, well, actually it doesn't quite work like that. And then she's like, well, what's the point of you? And she leaves. And then they're like, wait, but how did she know we were time travelers? We didn't tell anyone about that. So then they realise they're going to have to try and find a solution for peace because they don't want all these people that they know and like to end up dying. And also they're kind of like, why did Troilus die already? Like, I don't know about that. And then they realise eventually that Helen is going to be the key. Like, winning her round is going to be the only thing that can kind of convince a, a ceasefire. 
and she sees them do something that kind of earns her trust. Maybe they're nice to someone or they are like very respectful at the morning for all the people that have died. And so she eventually like opens up to them and it turns out in a plot device I have ripped from the Big Finish audio, The Kingmakers, I think mm. it's called. Yes. So because she's so famous for being this like incredibly beautiful woman, basically ever since she was born, people have been turning up to have a look and see what the fuss is about. So that's the thousand ships. It's time travel ships slash spaceships. And they've all been like going back to have a, to have a nosy. And maybe there's like some flashbacks at this point of like her as a young girl and people calling her Helen of Troy. And she's like, I don't, I don't know about Troy. I live in Sparta with my mum and dad. Or maybe people being like, oh, she's not even that pretty. Like all of this. Mm. And that's what she's grown up with. And so she's like internalized this idea because they've told her a bit about what happens to her. She's internalized this idea that her role is just to be like passed around and cause the war because she has to, because that creates all of this literature and all of this history. And she feels obliged to. But then the doctor and the companions and her kind of work out between them like, you know what? It's not worth it. We'll figure out a way to make this not happen and you can choose what kind of life you want to have. She decides something, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then they manage to have a peace talk and they're like, oh, but what are we gonna do? Because everyone will think, what have we been doing for however long? The kind of needs to have been a war, otherwise our neighbors are gonna get spicy or whatever. And so then the doctor's like, well, you know, you've got the whole journey back, just work something out amongst yourselves that you're going to say has happened and if anybody doesn't want to go home like fancies a different life somewhere else like I'll take you I've got a ship whatever <laughs> and so maybe that's where Achilles and Patrocles go basically and like some of the other people that are supposed to have died but not all of them and so they reach a peace they're going to tell stories about what happened to like make it seem like there was this big epic fight even though they've actually sorted it out completely peacefully after some initial skirmishes and then yeah that's kind of the end and then it finishes with some sort of like stupid joke about like don't worry guys I know a shortcut from Odysseus and then scene <laughs> and that's my that's my that's my story that's my concept oh wow do you mm -hmm. see it's good, right? Yes, it is. I say as if you could, as if you aren't going to agree with me. Like that would be really harsh. You were just like, I don't know, Bethan. Now the issues are, the myth makers is a thing. I was going to say, but it's also kind of not a thing. True, true. Um, because we don't have the episodes anymore, and so the Doctor can kind of also be like, we'll tell everyone what happened as well, uh. and then it's a meta thing because it's like were those earlier episodes actually the truth or is this the truth? And it doesn't matter because it's Doctor Who and what is canon well, is yeah. like, who cares? I mean, like, there have been three different versions of Atlantis in the classic series which are, like, not at all reconcilable with each other and that was within a few years, so... I just think it would be fun. And the reason why I say it's kind of Western Europe and kind of not is because obviously, like, the myths of the Trojan War are considered to be like foundational to western literature but troy is actually in asia so mm. 
and then I would obviously in this version the casting would reflect the diversity of ancient Greece and mm. the surrounding world because it should mm. but that's my idea and I think it's quite good I really like how you combined Helen and Cassandra thank you essentially well Cassandra would be there as well yeah but like Helen still has a Cassandra role where she knows more than everyone around her but no one will listen to her and it's also kind of about like it would also it has like themes of kind of harassment faced by women and girls because mm. all these people showing up to just like gawk at her have had this real impact but yeah i just think it would be interesting but of course now that i've said it it can't be a thing because that's too detailed and no one's gonna make this beautiful dream a reality but uh, unless you do Mm-hmm. <gasps> me but that's just I just think like something like that would be nice and it, the thing is it is kind of a celebrity historical but it's also I think that's one example where I would be okay with something like that it's kind of in a robot of Sherwood kind yeah, of because it's about interacting with like the myth mm-hmm. and seeing what we can do with it mm-hmm. so yeah that's my jazz hands there nice <laughs> That's my, that's Good my for an audio reading. medium. Hmm? Good for an audio medium. I always am. Um, <laughs> I was rubbing my hands with glee earlier, even though nobody could see me. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of, like, maybe four or five times uh, while we've been recording, I've mentioned an episode and Jacob has some, done some kind of facial expression or, like, done a little dance or something like that. Uh, which does happen quite a bit, actually. But yeah, no, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great idea. And, like... And also, I think, does an interesting job of blurring what a historical is, which is an interesting point and something that we haven't really talked about. On that note, I think maybe we can finish up unless there's anything left to be said. I've said too much already. (laughs) All right, well. (laughs) Hi, future Kieran again. Originally, there was a bit in here about what our next episode would be. But we've changed things up a bit since this recording. We will definitely be doing a retrospective on the Chibnall era when it ends towards the end of this year, 2022. And beyond that, we're probably going to focus more on one-offs like this rather than going through whole seasons for a while just because of time constraints. So, hopefully you can join us for that. And until then, I've been Kieran. I've been Ben. I've been Jacob. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.